0: Huge uh, rates of PTSD in the drone community and other things, because, I mean, these guys are just staring at people all day long, and then every so often, they have to blow them up.
1: This week on War College, I'm joined by Matthew Galt and Joe Trevithick to talk about drones. They may be the current state of the art of war, but they certainly aren't without technological or human problems.
2: You're listening to War College, a weekly discussion of a world in conflict focusing on the stories behind the front lines. Here's your host, Jason Fields.
1: So today we're actually talking about drones and uh, specifically military drones. We'd previously talked about the F-35 fighter jet and various problems that had come up with that, and that led to a conversation, okay, so if this is a really problem jet, um, what comes next? And one suggestion was it could be, you know, drones will replace them entirely. Uh, Joe, could you just sort of give us a rough idea of what missions drones carry out now Sort of almost anything you can
0: imagine is is at least on the docket for what drones will be able to take care of in in the near future. But right now it's primarily uh, surveillance, um, both, you know, just observing the battlefield and uh, more what you would consider to be the the job of, you know, traditional spy planes, you know, flying at high altitudes near or above, uh, you know, Uh, enemy countries or enemy forces or something like that, as well as uh, a number of armed drones uh, carry out very limited uh, strikes. It's primarily used for attacking um, insurgents and other uh, sort of lower-grade military forces, you know, not not, uh, necessarily what you consider to be fighting, you know, big, you know, conventional wars.
1: Okay, so... Basically, they they carry, uh, the ones that are armed carry one or two missiles, something like that.
0: The uh, Predator that many people are familiar with, you know, the first of these really big, uh, you know, in terms of big-time armed drones, that carried uh, two Hellfire missiles. Um, the larger Reaper drones, which came after another uh, product of the same manufacturer, General Atomics, they can carry four Hellfire missiles or four uh, laser-guided bombs, you know, sort of give you different options.
2: Um, there's, there's two other variants. There's a Grey Eagle that also carries four Hellfires and a, something called a Fire Scout, which you don't really see a lot of, that kind of looks like a helicopter, um, that can also carry two Hellfires and can be equipped with guns or rockets instead.
1: And they're used, these drones and their missiles are used primarily against uh, targets on the ground. Is that right?
0: Yeah, this is for uh, ground attacks. Um, The uh, Navy is working on um, advanced drones that may be able to take the role of uh, a fighter jet and do uh, dogfighting in the future. Uh, Other countries are also claiming that they're working on this. Um, But so far, no one has put into service a, a drone that really matches up with a a fighter jet, but it's definitely something that that people are actively working on, and I think it's easily something that I'll see in my lifetime.
1: I just grew up around model airplanes, and including model airplanes that, you know, you had a remote control, and uh, you could make them dive and uh, all sorts of stuff. I'm very fond of crashing mine. So uh, anyway, (laughs) really, what's the difference between a drone and a model airplane? other than the fact that mine didn't carry Hellfire missiles?
2: Not a lot, actually. Um, In a a very basic way, the drones we have today are just kind of an extension of those model airplanes you had as a kid. In fact, in World War II, um, Germany had radio-controlled flying bombs that it used uh, against the Allies. It was kind of the birth of what we would think of now as drones. What's, What's changed dramatically is technology.
1: So, but does that mean uh, that there's actually people controlling these drones? I mean, I, I guess I know the answer to that is yes, but I mean, so they're not completely automated, right? I mean, there's, if if I had a remote control, there are people operating the controls now, right?
0: Yeah, I, I mean, I was just going you know, to, I mean, that's that's more or less the uh, the plan is that basically, you know, the, the Pentagon especially likes to point out that, that with uh, ground attacks via drones, you know, there's always somebody behind the trigger, so to speak. Um, there is, you know, like any airplane, there is, the, you know, capability for an autopilot, you know, they, they can fly pre-programmed routes, you know, the pilot doesn't always have to be directly, you know, flying the, the uh, drone, so to speak, but that that's sort of an existing level of automation. And there are plans for uh, much more serious automation, which could allow drones and again, in the near future to take on an automated mission, and maybe even take on an automated strike. Um, The Navy, for instance, was uh, testing out um, a drone called the X-47B, which uh, looks like a sort of miniature uh, flying wing, one of these stealth flying wings, and uh, it was basically taking off and landing on aircraft carriers on its own authority. Uh, it actually aborted one landing attempt on its own authority when it when it thought you know the computer on board thought that it was uh, not going to work, not going to land successfully. It aborted that landing. And then even more recently, they uh, had it link up with uh, an aerial refueling tanker um, and both uh, just link up with the tanker and then eventually take on fuel and refuel in midair, all autonomously.
2: So uh, we are moving towards automation. That's where these are going. But right now, like you said, Jason, yeah, there are people back home in boxes, literally steel boxes out in the middle of the desert, that are sitting and controlling um, controlling these drones. And it's actually now, one of the hold on. Big...
1: You mean like uh, trailers? Hold on. You mean like a trailer, uh, not like as a little... Like a, a shipping a, little... They look like okay, shipping okay, containers. Okay, okay, okay. All right. I, just, I was just thinking of... Uh, Okay, I just was thinking about people being stuck in little metal metal
2: boxes, like in a prison. Uh, I think if you, you, well, if you talked to some of the drone pilots, um, they may say that, in fact, they felt like they were inside of a prison. Um, Is these, getting enough pilots for the drones is actually one of the big problems with this program. Um, Pilot, Air Force pilots especially, do not like doing it. Uh, and this is something that Joe has researched extensively.
0: Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, it, the morale issue, especially in the uh, Air Force drone community, is, is still in the tank. Um, most recently, uh, the Air Force actually announced that it was going to be offering uh, re-enlistment bonuses up to $15,000 um, to encourage people to stay in the drone field. And uh, but that's that's really just the latest iteration of all of this., uh, these guys are working uh, you know, eight plus hour, twelve plus hour shifts in a box. Um, they were at least uh, initially almost entirely basically stolen from jobs where they would have been flying fighter jets, like real, real airplanes. And flying a fighter jet is not only uh, something that, requires a lot of training and time on your part, but it's also just, it's a really prestige position. And so, I mean, these guys were, were taken out of that role and, and put into this really unglamorous, and and as far as they were concerned, a largely undignified role. And there was at least one instance in the mid-2000s where they actually booed one of their commanders uh, during a, a briefing when he showed up to talk with them, and they, they booed him when he came into the room. So,
2: uh, And it's you, you kind of think of it from their perspective. These are guys that were the best of the best. It's not easy to get through flight school. Um, like Joe said, it's prestige position to be able to fly a jet in the American military. Um, and they so they go through all of their long training process and they figure out how to fly a jet and they spend their mana. You know, they they spend their time in training simulations. And then they find out, okay, we need you to sit in this metal box in outside of Las Vegas and pilot a drone that's half a world away um, and just stare at a computer screen and work a joystick. And then you'll go home to your wife and kids and everything, you know. And it just, it, it's not, its there's a disconnect there. And a lot of these guys have had problems adjusting to that. Well, and a
0: disconnect also between what they thought they would be doing and what they, they end up doing. Oddly enough, a lot of research has shown that there isn't a disconnect between... Uh, their, their distance from the battlefield and the kind of issues that they're handling. I mean, there's a huge uh, rates of PTSD in the drone community and other things because, I mean, these guys are just staring at people all day long and then every so often they have to blow them up.
2: He, he, he's right. Uh, the Air Force and other people have studied this and found that drone pilots have the exact same PTSD rates as uh, pilots in so-called active combat.
0: A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri term medical plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com.
1: Wow, so, okay. You're saying that they're basically watching people all day and then eventually perhaps deciding to take a shot. How? well can they see the people that they're looking at all day? I mean, because what we see, uh, the footage that's released is pretty grainy and uh, often black and white, or maybe it's always black and white. Is that also what uh, the The, uh, the the black and white
0: is, is generally the the default um, still in terms of, you know, it's, it's either black hot or white hot where the, the system can either interpret the heat signatures as one or the other color, and it's an easy way just of creating that contrast. Um, the fidelity you'd probably be seeing, I mean, I don't know personally, but I imagine the fidelity you would actually be seeing um, in front of the screen would be much higher than the video that is released. But from what you see in the kind of requirements they put out, uh, that fidelity, that the, the level of clarity is still basically being able to identify that it is a person but you're not, you know, you're not doing any kind of facial recognition or anything on them. You don't know who it is necessarily. You know, they're people. Um, you may be able to see uh, weapons or something, but you're, you know, you still have to make those decisions based on what, what what's limited, you know, what you can see. You know. And it's,
2: it's also important, I think, to note that the cameras are getting better. Um, yeah. The the new hotness that's coming out is a giga, gigapixel camera that's going to be on the Reapers. It's called, and this is real, the Gorgon Stare. Wow! It's actually
0: the second generation of that system. Yeah. Oh, nice.
2: Um, they're saying it's going to be able to watch eleven square miles at one time.
0: And it's a it's a whole collection of cameras, basically. And they, you know, it they were having real problems with this when they the first generation of the system because of exactly what we're talking about is that. There was no good way to basically transfer all that information across the kind of satellite links they had, and there was no necessarily very good way for people to actually be able to be watching it all at the same time. You know, it was collecting all this information, but you weren't necessarily getting it in real time because there was so much of it, and people didn't know what to do with
1: it. Wow. So, uh, but even with all that, so you still uh, just uh, I guess this is almost a side note, but I mean, in order to be sure who people are shooting at, and we know that there's been plenty of collateral damage over the years. Um, I probably shouldn't use that term, but there have been a lot of civilians or people who are not militants who have been killed in strikes. So they're relying on other forms of intelligence, is that right, in order to pick the village or the convoy or whatever that they're striking?
0: There's supposed to be two kinds of, you know, there are two sort of broad categories of strikes, and one is where there's some person on the ground who is coordinating the attack. Um, either a military, uh, these so-called joint tactical air controllers, the guys who are actually calling in the strike and they're, and they're talking back and forth um, often sort of through three different, you know, levels of command to get to the person who's actually behind the controls. But that actually happens with regular planes too. And there's, you know, there's either someone like that coordinating the strike on the ground um, there's some military unit on the ground who's coordinating the strike, some, some level of coordination on the ground. Um, and in the past, you then also, because of this difficulty, you had what they called signature strikes. Um, and there was basically, uh, a photo interpretation key more or less uh, in imagery interpretation. When, when military analysts look at a satellite image, for instance, there's a key of the kind of things you expect to see. And people are trained for this. And you you look at you know basically if I see this kind of these number of buildings it's this kind of facility or if I see this collection of vehicles it's this kind of unit, and they applied the same methodology to basically if there was ten guys around an SUV or there were too many SUVs outside someone's house one night um, that that was a terrorist meeting you know that there was a there was a a key basically of what what made a uh, terrorist. Sell, And this is how, actually, it probably in no small part how you got instances uh, like the attack on the wedding in Yemen, um, because there were a lot of SUVs. And that was probably exactly the same key that somebody saw. It was like there was a bunch of people and a lot of vehicles, um, and that's not something you see every day. And generally that's indicative of somebody with a lot of money or something. Um, and it turned out that it was probably... You know,
2: because they had turned out all their money for the wedding. But. So I, I have a question, Joe, then. Um, does that mean that, – that gives me a question about who the order to strike comes from. Because the way you're making it sound now to me is that there's this checklist, and if a situation that uh, American drones are observing meets the criteria that's on this checklist, you go ahead and strike. Um, is there somebody – at some point in that chain is there a human being that comes in and says yes or no they're
0: supposed to be there. from you know this is one of the big issues is that um the u.s government has released very little uh, information and very, even less information willingly about how uh d- drone strikes of any kind are carried out uh Sort of in this covert side, and this is largely on the on the the more covert side. You know, this drone strikes run by the Central Intelligence Agency, rather than day to day military drone strikes that basically fill in for what you'd expect for you know regular military aircraft. Um, uh, these kind of you know targeted strikes against potential terrorists and the like, and the government basically says that there are criteria and says that there are people who are supposed to be involved in the process who are who are sort of tr- double and triple checking and that there's some sort of final say and somebody gets a final say. But, of course, they're not going to tell you what those criteria are because, you know, they, they will claim national security and say, basically, if we tell you what the criteria are, then terrorists won't do that. Um, and they also won't tell you uh, who's in charge of uh, making those final calls, I'm sure, you know, to, to protect their privacy. Uh, You know, and so people have have struggled to get even just the legal justification for these drone strikes at all, just at the very most basic level, let alone the actual policies that drive how the each individual strike is carried out. You know, there's there's just a lot of there's a lot of information that we don't have, you know, I mean, and anybody who says that sort of, you know, they either have very good trusted sources who are telling them um, or they're going off like what I'm doing and basically saying this is what we can see, you know, and this is what we've been told in the vagaries of the official statements.
1: Well, so let's just take it from, I mean, it's going from what we don't know, uh, which is exactly how, I mean, these the targeted killings are carried out to, uh, just was wondering what other uses drones are put to um, right now. Are... We talked about. I mean, are, they're used during battle. uh at some point are they
0: or yeah yeah so, they're 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 uh, sort of. The, I'm sure the they're you know the buzzword will be integrated into into everything. They you know they they do perform strikes like a you know like normal tactical aircraft. Um, they perform various levels of surveillance, and this is something actually that, that should be mentioned is that. When we talk about drones, you know, what, what most people think of are like the Predators and the Reapers, these sort of relatively large, you know, military looking like drones. But, I mean, the, the term, the, this generic term covers everything from the kind of quadcopters you can buy off of eBay to uh, things that are even larger than the Predators and Reapers. And so, I mean, it's a really broad swath of types of vehicles you know, and they're not even all. They don't even all look like planes necessarily. Some of them look like helicopters, or not like anything at all, or they're blimps, or they're something else. So they're all and sorts of different
2: things. Most of it is most drones, I think, are surveillance, mm-hmm. right? Like I think right, over, still, yeah, the yeah. overwhelming use, the overwhelming use for drones by most uh, countries is surveillance, because you can have drones in the air. 24 hours a day, if you've got enough drones, you can have a drones above the target for 24 hours a day, seven days a week, watching and waiting. Um, whereas with pilots that are on surveillance, you have to, like, you, a pilot can't be in the air forever. They have to come down at some point. Um, and it's more expensive to keep them up there. Uh, when a drone shift changes
0: off, I mean, basically the thing can still be in the air and you just have somebody come into the box, you know, and the handoff is, is instantaneous. And... You know, what Matt's talking about is exactly right in that um, you never actually hear the Air Force talk about how many drones they have. They don't talk about how many Reapers or Predators they have. They talk about what are called combat air patrols. And that's four drones, and it's treated as a single entity because basically that number is what was decided to be the sweet spot in that basically that is the number of drones you need to keep basically one drone over the target 24-7 You know, seven days, you know, all week long and also account for one of them possibly being broken or some other issue. Um, And that's that's the number you need. And so when they talk about, you know, the number of when you see these number of so-called caps, that's what they're talking about. They're talking about these four drone groupings that basically allow them to, to, you know, keep a target under near constant surveillance.
1: Wow, so how long can a drone actually, um, I mean, an observation drone, I don't, I don't know whether, be it a Predator or a Global Hawk or anything else, I mean, how long do these things actually stay in the air? Um, and you mentioned uh, one that could actually be, that refueled itself in flight. Is that something that most of them can do, or?
0: No, no, the refueling capability is new. Um, there was a rumor that the Air Force had modified um, a number of their super secret RQ-170 stealth drones, uh, to be able to refuel in flight. There were some pictures that circulated, um, that's uncorroborated, but, but well within the realm of, of feasibility, um, especially since we've seen the Navy, uh, do it on their end and the Navy's refueling system, which involves a dangling hose and a basket where the drone has to, uh, Basically, meet up with the basket and and place the refueling probe into the basket is a much more complicated procedure than a drone would have to do with a uh, air force style boom refueling mechanism. Where basically uh, all the drone would have to do would be to stay at one altitude and one position, and the boom operator on the tanker could basically point the boom into the drone. It would be a much simpler procedure. And we already know the complicated procedure can be done. So it's, not, it's definitely not out of the realm of reason.
2: Um, and it's about, I think right now, it's 42 hours that the, the fanciest Reapers can go without needing refueling. So almost two days of constant flight. And glo- what's Global Hawk's range? Because Global Hawk, the other
0: thing is, is that uh, these these drones the, to to keep that loiter time, it's usually over shorter distances. But Global Hawk does does plus twelve hours sorties a lot, and it's usually over thousands of miles. Like where you need to base Global Hawks uh, to have them spying on on areas. I mean, they don't need to be anywhere near. Where they're going and they you know they fly at extremely high altitudes you know they have these amazingly long slender wings they basically it's it, it is a a uh, unmanned equivalent of the u2 spy plane which was also basically just a powered glider able to to basically be very efficient at high altitudes and you know have really good range and really be really efficient at those ranges so i mean they're they can be anywhere you need them to be, you know, often, and, and it's only getting better. It's only, you know, one of these things is that it's only
2: getting better. Uh, the other thing I'd like to point out, too, is that they're cheap. They're cheap relative to a lot of the other methods we use to accomplish uh, spying and targeted killings. Um, you know, we, we've we been talking a lot about the F-35. We don't really know what the unit cost is, depending on the variant, somewhere between $150 million and $350 million, depending on which specific type. And that's the new hotness, the new jet. Um, a, a, a Predator is $4 million. Uh, a Reaper, a, a little bit fancier, is $17 million. Um, that's
0: just that's just the equipment, too. Yeah. I mean, that doesn't take into account the the cost it takes to train the pilots or maintain any of the infrastructure. I mean, I don't know if you've seen any of these uh, satellite imageries of, of, you know, the quote-unquote drone bases we have around the world, but they are Spartan. You know, they're, they're usually like a hangar and uh, a runway. And because uh, unlike having to have all the people there to fly jets and then maintain that and then feed the people who fly jets and provide all the other services, et cetera. I mean, you just, you have a half dozen guys, you have a dozen guys, you have something like that, you know, and they're, they're just making sure the drones work and then they get them up into the air and then they pass control via satellite off to a guy in the box in the United States.
2: yeah, It's overwhelmingly cheaper to have a drone force than it is to have, um, you know, have jets in the air.
1: So, all right. So what would be the argument be at this point for jets over drones? I mean, I, I, I that's probably, maybe that's too simplistic, but um, I, let's see, jets are faster. Is that right? <laughs>
0: right now anyways but that, that that's that's not again that's not a not a static thing
1: <laughs> right okay so so yeah so what do you see as the key advantage at this point
0: i think at least for the foreseeable future a person is always going to have better situational awareness than than a drone um, that that's that's one of the reasons why you still have manned spy planes even in in the US air force service and they keep debating about how many of them they're going to keep combined you know compared to how many drones and the rest of it. Um, again that you know as things improve that, that could easily change. But at least right now that's definitely you know there are people bring advantages to the table that, that you can't right now replicate.
2: Uh, in in speaking to that, Joe, is there there's lag time between the drone physically seeing the image and it get, getting back to, um, the pilot? Correct. I mean it's not much but there is a little bit of lag. Yeah. And
0: that's always improving too. And that's a matter of, uh, you know, whenever you, you might hear the air force talking about the need to improve satellite bandwidth. And that's sort of the thing is that, you know, and that's Matt was talking about this. I mean, you know, the, the army had its first surveillance drone in the fifties, but it was basically a hobbyist's model plane. You know, it had been designed as a target for anti-aircraft gunners initially. And then they had, put a camera on it, put a regular film camera on it. And uh, it had no range and had to be flown by radio control by guys who could physically see where it was going or fly a pre-programmed route. Um, And then it would basically come and crash and then they would pick it up and then they would get the film developed, you know? And so, uh, you know, even when you talk about when you got TV cameras onto things uh, transmitting that television feed thousands of miles with any with any speed and at any fidelity, I mean that that took forever. And you know we're we're starting to finally see that that's a thing that can happen. Um, that kind of streaming feed and it still requires a ton of bandwidth. And so you know they, that's going to be a thing again. That's also going to need to improve. They're going to need to basically there'll probably be a whole new generation of satellites to go along with the next generation of drones to handle this bandwidth. Or there will be, a you know, the, the receivers on the ground. You know, something like that will have to handle the immense amount of information that's going back and forth. And that's sometimes, you know, a problem with a drone, you know, that causes drone crashes. You know, if the satellite gives out, um, the drones often have a pre-programmed sort of emergency protocol. But depending on where it is, it can run out of fuel, uh, there might just be a mountain in the way. You know, all sorts of things can happen.
1: So, so that actually leaves your force, if you're really dependent on drones, uh, vulnerable to anyone who can take out your satellites, too, right?
0: That's a concern. There's this. There is a whole sort of cyber war concern, you know, about what would happen for sure.
2: Uh, and that you know, that speaks to another advantage of always still having that cachet of human pilots at the ready. You know, because that's that is a really strong concern that you, there are a couple things that can get knocked out that will destroy the infrastructure of the drone system and satellites is one of them,
0: you know, and a, and a person who is getting conflicting or, uh, incorrect orders can challenge that, or at least be, you know, guaranteed to think about it a little bit more, but a drone that gets its orders are its orders, it's just going to do it. So, you know, uh, Another, Which is actually another reason for uh, greater autonomy, actually. A lot of people say, oh, greater autonomy, you know, it's a, it's sort of the Terminator movies waiting to happen. But there is this hope that with greater autonomy, uh, basically it prevents the drones from being uh, as susceptible to foul play. Because they know what their mission is from the start, and they just do it, rather than needing sort of constant commands.
1: That sounds like a really, really scary way... In order to protect us from a security flaw,
2: <laughs> it's really but but, but in a
0: way, it's it's something that we've been we've been working on for years now. Um, the uh, the F one hundred and five Thunder Chief, the the sort of pride of the Cold War Air Force, this heavy fighter bomber thing that could carry nuclear weapons and the rest of it, because it was designed to basically fly nuclear weapons to the target. It had a radar-assisted bombing computer inside of it that controlled more or less everything but landing and takeoff. Once the pilot took off, he put in the coordinates of where he was going into the computer. And because it was a nuclear bomb, it didn't need to be super accurate. Um, And it basically flew him to the target. It released the bomb. It turned the plane around and it flew him back. And that, I mean, that's, that's 1950s technology. And so, I mean, that was a way of automating the process so that the pilot could just keep an eye out for enemy fighters or something, you know, if something happened, you had the pilot in the plane uh, to, you know, save the day or what have you. But but the process was automated. And this actually was a, was a thing in Vietnam that, that there were radar-controlled carpet bombing strikes in places like Laos and in South Vietnam where, where this radar called Combat Sky Spot would direct B-52 bombers basically to the box. And they would just arrive and drop all their bombs and then fly home. And, and no one was ever really paying attention to what was below. There, there wasn't, you know, the, the bomb damage assessment afterwards was supposed to figure out whether you would actually hit anything. But, I mean, it was all, the process was essentially automated. There were, there were people behind
2: the controls of the plane, but the process was automated. Yeah, I mean, this, this, this stuff is coming. Like, it's going, it's all going to happen, despite people's attempts to stop it. We're, it there's just going to be more drones. This, we are just seeing, we are at the beginning of something. Um, uh, and it kind of, it's, it's interesting because we're not, it's not only the beginning of robot wars essentially, but the end of an era, I think with, with the air force's fighter pilots.
0: Yeah. It's going to be a real existential crisis and we're seeing that already. We're seeing that with the, with the low morale in the drone force and the difficulty they have keeping these guys on the job. Um, and it won't be overnight. Uh, the Air Force is already becoming very fond of. They, they already don't want you calling them drones. They want them you calling them remotely piloted aircraft because that that again reinforces that there's an operator involved, highlights the the human element. Um and but they're also becoming very popular, uh, fond of uh, so called pilot optional ideas, and that the future planes will be pilot optional. And the idea would be, of course, that well, you could keep pilots, you know, in your ranks and they would do piloty things. But if a war broke out and it was too dangerous, well, the plane could fly itself and you wouldn't really need them, you know, and, it, and that, that that's probably going to be a transition that you'll start seeing and, you know, maybe eventually the Air Force will have the full existential crisis with pilots not necessarily flying in combat, you know, flying on training missions and Keeping up their proficiency, but never actually flying in combat. But that's that's still years away, and I'm sure no one in the Air Force wants to think about that.
1: <laughs> okay. All right. Well, thanks very much. That's uh, an incredible amount to digest, and uh, it's hard to imagine the world without uh, our you know fighter pilots in the skies. But uh, anyway, thanks uh, once again, as always. Uh, whenever we do this podcast, I come go home a little bit more scared than when we started it. So <laughs> That's what we're here for. All right. Well, thanks, guys. We'll talk soon.
2: Next time on War College. After a decade
1: of double-digit growth in its, uh, its military spending, China
2: is now the dominant power, regional power,